God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. And take your Bibles and let's go to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, then in verse 16. What we're going to look at today is eyewitnesses of His majesty. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, we read, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 18 now. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the Holy Mount. It is important for us to both understand and believe that neither the message of Christ nor His person are part of a cleverly devised fable. Rather, that Christianity as we know it today is based upon the personal and eyewitness accounts of those who themselves saw not only Christ in His resurrected body, but also the glory that shall be Christ at His return. This glory was first seen by Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Ellicott on this verse. The certainty of Christ coming again is the basis of these exhortations. And that certainty is proved, one, by the transfiguration, which was an anticipation of His coming in glory. Do you got that? By the utterance of the apostles who predicted it, of His majesty, at the transfiguration, which was a foretaste and an earnest of the glory of His second coming. This is St. Peter's view of it, and that it is the correct one is perhaps shown by the Gospels themselves. All three accounts of the transfiguration are preceded by the declaration, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Apparently, the transfiguration was regarded by Christ Himself as in some sense the coming of the Son of Man, end quote. Benson on this verse. But were eyewitnesses of His majesty at His transfiguration, which was a specimen of His glory at the last day, end quote again. What therefore Peter... James and John saw on the mountain when Jesus' body was changed and His true glory was revealed to them reflects whom the entire world will one day see at Christ's return. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain. Among the apostles, there remain three. Peter, James, and John, who were allowed the privilege to be shown the glory of who Jesus will be manifest at the last day, teaching us that even in the ranks of the saved and among the apostles, where and how much a man will be taken and shown things of the majesty of Christ will differ according to God's will for his life. 
the level of glory that men are allowed to see concerning Christ, depending on God's will concerning them. The point being that not all men will be deemed as equal regarding how much of the Lord's glory they will be shown. The most trusted followers of our Lord, as Peter, James, and John no doubt were, consequently given greater sight of the return of Christ in His Father's glory. It is a tremendous privilege for any to have sight of Christ, let alone be allowed to see the glory that shall be the Son of God's at His return. And like with Moses and his ascent onto a mountain, when he was exposed to God's glory, upon also a mountain, Christ's elect, these three apostles saw firsthand the coming glory of the Son of God. Verse 2 now of Matthew 17. And was, in reference to Christ, transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was as white as the light. The Gospel of Luke gives more information as to what these apostles of Christ saw when the Lord Jesus was transfigured before them, Luke 9, 29. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistening. As Jesus prayed and was making intercession with God, his countenance was altered. Christ's body, as well as the raiment he was wearing, changed to reveal a spiritual brilliance and radiance that no human had ever seen before. The transfiguration of Jesus resembled the same image shown to John by Christ in the book of Revelations. Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Whom John saw in his vision of Christ in Revelation was the same one whom he had seen crucified, risen, and ascending to heaven. Jesus is titled as the Son of Man because God has decreed that his heavenly Son should have special relationship with man. The Lord Jesus, who was born in the flesh, becoming the bridge between God, who is spirit, and fallen man. Jesus is seen by John in the midst of the seven candlesticks representing the churches of God, while clothed with a brilliant garment covering his celestial body down to his feet, within a golden girdle around his breast. Jesus stands in the midst of the seven candlesticks because he is always among his chosen, and the centerpiece of his church. He is their light, and without him they would have no light, teaching us that Christ is the core of all the true churches of God. And as such, he is always in the midst of those called by God unto himself. There is therefore no true church of God which has not the Son of Man as its center. Any church, therefore, that has not Christ as its head, is not the work of God. This is also why whenever you see anything that says it comes in the name of God, but does not have Christ as its center and head, 
you can know that it is just practiced human religious idolatry. Jameson Fawcett Brown on Revelation 1.13. His glorified form as a man could be recognized by John, who had seen it at the transfiguration. In the midst implying Christ's continual presence and ceaseless activity in the midst of his people on earth, the form which John had seen enduring the agony of Gethsemane and the shame and anguish of Calvary, he now sees glorified. His glory as a son of man, not merely son of God, is the result of his humiliation as the son of man. Down to the foot a mark of high rank, the garment and girdle seem to be emblems of his priesthood. Aaron's robe and girdle were for glory and beauty and combined the insignity of royalty and priesthood the characteristics of Christ and typical priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. His being in the midst of the candlesticks, only seen in the temple, shows that it is a king priest. He is so attired. This priesthood he has exercised ever since his ascension, and therefore he wears its emblems. As Aaron wore these insignia when he came forth from the sanctuary to bless the people. So when Christ shall come again, he shall appear in the similar attire of beauty and glory. The ordinary girding for one actively engaged was at the loins, but Josephus expressively tells us that the Levitical priests were girt higher up about the breasts or paps, appropriate to calm, majestic movement. The girdle bracing the frame together symbolizes collective powers. Righteousness and faithfulness are Christ's girdle. The high priest's girdle was only interwoven with gold, but Christ is all of gold. The antitype exceeds the type, end quote. Again, what we see by Christ clad as a priest in the midst of the seven candlesticks shows us how Christ is the light and illumination of his church. For as Jesus said, John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. Jesus also teaching his followers that they are the branches and they can have no life nor bear any fruit outside of himself. Uh, Matthew Henry on Revelation 1, 13, the churches receive their light from Christ and the gospel and hold it forth to others, end quote. The Lord thus is always in the midst of his people, whereby his holy presence enables his people to be lights to the world. See, candlesticks on their own do not produce light, nor can Christians on their own, absent Christ shining in them, manifest any of either the light, life, fruit, or nature of God. What also gives Christians their glory is that the spirit of the resurrected Christ is in them. Colossians 1.27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Apart from the Son of God, men can have no connection to either God or the heavenly world he represents. What is seen by John in this vision, given to him by the Lord Jesus of himself, is Jesus' true appearance. Hence, where at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus 
as he would be in his future glory. Now, after Christ's resurrection, and as depicted in the book of Revelation, this glory has been entered into. Luke 24, 26. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Jesus, as God's high priest, is adorned in John's vision in a similar yet even more glorious attire as Aaron was before him, who is a type of Christ as the high priest. Christ's garment flowed down to his feet, showing us how the ministry of God's Son is fully employed and fully endowed to be God's high priest to man. The golden girdle is seen around Christ's breast, reveals not only our Lord Jesus' princely rank, but his kingly position among the nations. The attire of Christ is emphasized because it reveals the glory which is now Christ in heaven. Those also given special positions by God will be given by God divine clothing to match it. Revelation 4.4 And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. So also, Revelation 6.11. And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet a little season unto their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. As seen in the Old Testament, it is God who designs the clothing of priestly offices. Exodus 28.2 And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for glory and for beauty. In regards to Christ's golden girdle, Poole writes, And girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Nor dare I determine this significancy of the golden girdle about his loins. It was a habit like that in Daniel's vision, Daniel 10.5, they were both symbols of majesty, authority, and dignity. And the appearance agreed very well to him, who was both a high priest and a king, end quote. The significance of then both the length of the priestly and kingly robe, and kingly robe with its brilliance and the golden girdle about Christ's breast illuminates an image of Christ as both king and priest, king of this world and a priest to those who God has chosen who need spiritual intercession made for them. Revelation 1.14 His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as the snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. One cannot see Jesus as depicted here and not think of the Ancient of Days that Daniel saw in his vision of the last time. Daniel 7, 9. I behold till the thrones were cast down and the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. Both the terminology and description of Jesus in the book of Revelation and God in the book of Daniel are the same. White as snow and white like wool. Ellicott on verse 14. 
The white head is never in public sentiment other than the venerable sign of ripe knowledge, mature judgment, and solid wisdom. And as such, it well betokens that full wisdom and authority which is wielded by the Ancient of Days, who, though always the same in the fresh dew of youth, is yet from everlasting, the captain of salvation, perfect through suffering, radiant in the glorious youthhood of heaven, venerable in that eternal wisdom and glory which he had with the Father before the world." End quote. Barnes on verse 14. The representation was suited to signify majesty, an authority, and this would be best accomplished by the image of one who is venerable in years. Thus, in the vision that appeared to Daniel, it is said of him who is there called the Ancient of Days, that his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. It is not improbable that John had that representation in his eye and that therefore he would be impressed with the conviction that this was a manifestation of a divine person." End quote. Ellicott on Daniel 8, 9. Ancient of days, literally, a very aged man. The attribute of age expresses the majesty of the judge. End quote. Observing the ancient of days, which Daniel saw in his vision, is seen to represent both God and the Son of God. Verse 10 now of Daniel 7. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. The fiery stream issuing from the Ancient of Days is symbolic of the judgment that shall come from God's heavenly throne. For God's power is not simply to save, but also to judge those who have rejected His rule. The thousand thousands who minister to Him represent His angels and the power and dignity of heaven that is His. The sheer abundance of the holy beings at His disposal and for His pleasure indicate the great glory that is God's. So also, even as thousand thousands of heavenly beings minister unto the Lord, it is listed as 10,000 times 10,000 stood before Him. By seeing the gathering first of the heavenly host and then the gathering of the great multitude of men who will be judged, we see that the stage is set for the great judgment of God. For now the judgment was set and the books were opened. What we see here in Daniel's vision is the coming together of heaven and earth, whereby God and the power and glory of the heaven arrive for the great day of judgment. This is an awful scene which speaks of the fire that is God, which will now both purify and judge the works of men. God is often spoken of as a fire, and one to whom proper respect should be given, lest he consume men in his wrath. Hebrews 12:28. Wherefore, we receive in a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably 
with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. That God is a consuming fire is a quotation from Deuteronomy, whereby the Lord is shown to be a jealous God, ready to execute judgment against those who engage in idolatry against Him. Deuteronomy 4.24 For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Benson on this verse. A consuming fire, a just and terrible God, who notwithstanding His special relation to you, will severely punish you if you provoke Him. A jealous God, who being espoused to you, will be highly incensed against you if you follow after other lovers or commit whoredoms, and will bear no rival or partner, end quote. The fire that comes from out of God's mouth is seen to be appropriate for the events in Revelation, where idolatry and rebellion against God shall be divinely and then severely dealt with. So also it will be seen later in the chapter, God's heavenly judgment will be administered by the Son of Man, whom God has given the full authority and power to judge man. John 5, 22. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. It shall be in the end then, the Son of God, who is part of His heavenly glory and power that God has given Him, who shall sit as the judge of all men. Barnes on Daniel 7.10 And the books were opened as containing the record of the deeds of those who were to be judged. The great judge is represented as having before him the record of all the deeds on which judgment was to be pronounced and to be about to pronounce sentence according to those deeds, end quote. Gill on this. And the books were opened, both to take the trial in writing and to produce evidence against the criminals. The book of God's purposes and decrees concerning these beasts the book of prophecies relating to them, the book of God's remembrance and of their own consciences with respect to the evils committed by them. Likewise, the number of the persons judged, as seen here, will be very great, even innumerable, all, both small and great, as to age or dignity, will stand before the judged to be judged by him and receive their sentence from him. And there will be books for that purpose, as here even the same, and particularly the book of life, in which if a man's name is not written, he will be cast into the lake of fire, End quote. The solemnity of this moment cannot be overstated, for here we begin to see the conclusion of God's dealings with man, which shall be overseen and ultimately orchestrated by the Son of Man, with his return to the earth. Verse 13 of Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. The Son of Man is seen here coming with the clouds of heaven and approaching the Ancient of Days, to then play his role in the judgment of the earth. Matthew 16, 27. 
For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then shall he reward every man according to his works. Albert Barnes makes an interesting point on verse 13 in Daniel 7 when he states, It is remarkable that Daniel does not attempt to represent this by any symbol. The representation by symbols ceases with the fourth beast. And now the description assumes a literal form, the setting up of the kingdom of the Messiah and of the saints. Why this change of form occurs is not stated or known, but the sacred writers seem carefully to have avoided any misrepresentation of the Messiah by symbols, end quote. This shows us that there is nothing figurative about Jesus, and that is a great sin to speak of him in any way but literally, lest the reality of his true person be diminished. See, there are no allegorical terms used for the Son of God, no figures which depict him other than who he truly is. As what men need to fear in order to live their lives properly before God is the literal description of the Son of God. Unlike in the Old Testament, when no image was allowed to be made of God, so here no liberty is taken to describe the Son of God in any way that would make him less able to be believed upon. Jesus is neither a myth nor a fable. He is a living and alive heavenly being. Men should also fear Christ simply because it shall be he who judges them. Mark 14, 62. And Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Christ's authority to judge man is directly linked and connected to his being the Son of Man, so that he who shall be given authority to judge all flesh is he who also was a partaker of flesh, Hebrews 2.14. Forasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. John 5.27 as well. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is given authority from God, and the primary action of this authority is seen to be to execute the divine judgment of men. Barnes on this verse, John 5, 27, hath given him an authority, hath appointed him to do this. He made him to be judge of all. This is represented as being the appointment of the Father. The word authority here, commonly rendered power, implies all that is necessary to execute judgment. All the physical power to raise the dead and to investigate the actions and thoughts of the life, and all the moral right or authority to sit in judgment on the creatures of God and to pronounce their doom. To execute judgment, to do judgment, that is to judge. He has appointment to do justice, to see that the universe suffers no wrong, either by the escape of the guilty or by the punishment of the innocent. Because he is the Son of Man. The phrase, the Son of Man, here seems to be used in the sense of 
because he is a man or because he has human nature. The term is one which Jesus often gives to himself to show his union with man and his interest in man. It is to be remarked here that the word son does not have the article before it in the original because he is a son of man, that is, because he is a man. It would seem from this that there is a propriety that one in our nature should judge us. What this propriety is, we do not certainly know. It may be, one, because one who has experienced our infirmities and who possesses our nature may be supposed by those who are judged to be better qualified than one in a different nature. Two, because he is to decide between man and God. And it is proper that our feelings and nature and views should be represented in the judge as well as those of God, end quote. Again, the authority that God has given Jesus to judge the world stems from a fact that he is the son of man. Thirdly, because Jesus has all the feelings of compassion we could ask, all the benevolence we could desire in a judge, because he has shown his disposition to defend us by giving his life. And it could never be alleged by those who are condemned that their judge was a distant, cold, and unfriendly being, end quote. The James Fawcett Brown Bible on this, son of man, not merely son of David and king of Israel, but head of restored humanity, corresponding to the worldwide horizon of Daniel's prophecy. The seed of the woman, Jesus, crushing Antichrist, the seed of the serpent, according to the protoevangel in Paradise, Genesis 3.15. The representative man shall then realize the original destiny of man as head of their creation. The center of unity to Israel and the Gentiles, the beast, which taken conjointly represents the four beasts, ascends from the sea. The Son of Man descends from heaven. Satan is a serpent, as is the representative head of all that is bestial. Man, by following the serpent, has become bestial. God must, therefore, become man so that man may cease to be beast-like. Whoever rejects the incarnate God will be judged by the Son of Man just because he is the Son of Man. This title is always associated with his coming again because the kingdom that then awaits him is that which belongs to him as the Savior of man, the restorer of the lost inheritance. Son of Man expresses his visible state formerly in humiliation, hereafter in exaltation. He comes to the Ancient of Days to be invested with the kingdom. Psalm 110.2, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength, Messiah, out of Zion. This investiture was at his ascension with the clouds of heaven, which is a pledge of his return in like manner in the clouds and with clouds. The kingdom then was given to him in title and invisible exercise. At his second coming, it shall be invisible administration. He will vindicate it from the misrule of those who received it 
to hold for and under God, but who ignored his supremacy. The father will assert his right by the son, the heir who will hold it for him, end quote. Jesus thus shall, as a representation of a new race of man, assume the original dominion of the first Adam, as well as being given authority over all the sons of Adam. Daniel 7, 14. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. See, no man can properly instruct anything about God's coming kingdom and not include the Lord Jesus Christ's hieratical position in it. Acts 17, 31. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Wherefore, he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Back to Barnes on Daniel 7, 14. And there was given him dominion, that is, by him who is represented as the Ancient of Days. The fair interpretation of this is that he received the dominion from him. This is the uniform representation in the New Testament. The word dominion here means rule or authority, such as a prince exercises. He was set over a kingdom as a prince or ruler that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. It would be universal, would embrace all nations. The language here is such as would emphatically denote universality. It implies that the kingdom would extend over all the nations of the earth, and we are to look for the fulfillment of this only in such a universal reign of the Messiah. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. The others, represented by the four beasts, would all pass away. But this would be permanent and eternal. Nothing would destroy it. It would not have, as most kingdoms of the earth have had, any such internal weakness or source of discord as would be the cause of its destruction. Nor would there be any external power that would invade or overthrow it, end quote. We see here Jesus' exalted position in the earth, whereby all people, nations, and languages should serve him. The Son, therefore, shall be given by God the Ancient of Days, complete and total dominion over all in the earth. Jesus shall reign the world, and a glorious reign it shall be, whose, the Son of God's reign, shall be unable to be destroyed and cannot pass away. What God does, he does forever. And this is seen in his establishment of his resurrected son as this world's supreme ruler. Daniel 7, 18. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. What is Christ's? He shares with his people. God's word often speaks of the heirship, which shall be the churches, 
because of their connection to Jesus as their Lord. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. So that even as the Son of God shall be manifest to the world in His glory, so will the children of God receive their heavenly inheritance through Him at His second coming. In short, it shall be the people of Christ who shall, because of their connection to the Son of God, reign the world. Uh, Barnes on Daniel 7:18. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom. That is, they shall ultimately take possession of the rule over all the world and shall control it from that tide onward to the end. The word rendered saints means the holy, and the reference is undoubtedly to the people of God on the earth, meaning here that they would take possession of the kingdom or that they would rule when true religion shall everywhere prevail and when all offices shall be in the hands of good men, of men that fear God and that keep His commandments instead of being in the hands of bad men as they generally have been, then this prediction will be accomplished in respect to all that is fairly implied in it, end quote. Daniel's vision continues by revealing to its readers whom it is that Jesus will forcibly overthrow to set up God's kingdom. Verse 19 of Daniel 7, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. Verse 20, And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout, than his fellows. I beheld, and at the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Verse 22 now, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Barnes on Daniel 7:19. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast. I desired to know particularly what was symbolized by that. He appears to have been satisfied with the most general intimations in regard to the first three beasts, for the kingdoms represented by them seemed to have nothing very remarkable, but it was different in regard to the fourth. The beast itself was so remarkable, so fierce and terrific. The number of the horns was so great the springing up of the little horn was so surprising. The character of that horn was so unusual. The judgment passed on it was so solemn. And the vision of one like the Son of Man coming to take possession of the kingdom. All these things were of so fearful and so uncommon a character that the mind of Daniel was peculiarly affected in view of them. 
and he sought earnestly for a further explanation. In the description that Daniel here gives of the beast and the horns, he refers in the main to the same circumstances which he had before described, but he adds a few which he had before omitted, all tending to impress the mind more deeply with the fearful character and momentous import of the vision. As, for instance, the fact that it had nails of brass and made war with the saints, end quote. Without getting too deep into the particulars of this revelation and teaching about the fourth beast and his time of power, as well as what the horns represent as coming out of his head, along with the horn that makes war with the saints, sufficient it is enough to realize that the Ancient of Days comes and defeats this fourth beast's purposes. Jameis Fawcett Brown Bible again, verse 22 of Daniel 7. Ancient of Days came. The title applied to the Father in Daniel 7, 13 is here applied to the Son, who is called the Everlasting Father, Isaiah 9, 6. The Father is never said to come. It is the Son who comes. Judgment was given to saints. Judgment includes rule. Kingdom in the end of this verse. Christ first receives judgment and the kingdom then the saints with him, end quote. It shall be thus the coming of Jesus in glory, like unto the glory of Christ seen by Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, which shall destroy the fourth beast and all the evil influences of him. The glory of the Lord Jesus, far exceeding any influence of power of this dark, spiritually wicked being. How wonderful then it is to meditate upon the grand reality that whom the apostles saw on the Mount of Transfiguration and were then eyewitnesses of His majesty is the same Jesus portrayed here by the apostle John in Revelation. So also, even as Christ is given judgment, so too are the saints of God likewise given authority by God. 1 Corinthians 6.2 Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Returning to our record in Revelation, let us finish this wonderful study concerning the majesty of the glorified Jesus Christ. Verse 15 of Revelation 1, And his feet, like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters. Ellicott on this verse. His feet, like unto fine brass, the feet, like the feet of the ministering priests of Israel, were bare, and appeared like hakalimanas, fine brass. The exact meaning of this word, used only here, is not certain. The most trustworthy authors incline to take it as a hybrid word, half Greek, half Hebrew, kaklos, brass, and Laban white, to whiten and understand it to signify brass, which has attained in the furnace a white heat. His voice as the sound, better voice as the same word phone used twice, and translates first voice and then sound in our English version, of many waters. Daniel described the voice of the Ancient of Days as the voice of a multitude, Daniel 10.6, but the voice of the multitude was in earlier Hebrew writings compared to the sound of the waves of the sea, 
which the voice of the Lord alone could subdue. This image the evangelist adopts to describe the voice of Christ strong and majestic amid the Babel sounds of the earth, end quote. Everything about the glory of Christ, from the glory of his head and the white brass-like finish of his feet, shows us the great creature that is Christ, beautiful, brilliant, and full of the glory of God. John sees Jesus in his heavenly glory, Acts 7:55. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up, this is Stephen, steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Revelation 1:16. now. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. From the voice that sounded like a great rush of mighty waters comes out of the same mouth a sharp two-edged sword. From this sword of the Spirit shall the thoughts and the intents of every man be made known, so that every judgment of Christ is sure and reliable. Christ's words, as depicted here as a sharp two-edged sword, are therefore more than able to divide the good from the bad, whether it lives in men's hearts or in their thoughts, or in a wicked and evil world. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Ellicott on Revelation 1.16 And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. There need be no doubt about the meaning here. The imagery of the Bible elsewhere is too explicit to be mistaken. It is the sword of the Spirit, even the Word of God, which is here described. It is that word which is sharper than any two-edged sword and which lays bare the thoughts and the intents of the soul. This is the weapon with which Christ will subdue his enemies. No carnal weapon is needed. With this weapon of his word, he himself fights against his adversaries. And with this he lays bare the hidden hypocrisies of men, cuts off the diseased members, and wounds that he may heal." End quote. Jesus therefore shall need nothing but the word of God, which proceeds out of his mouth to separate between the saint and the hypocrite. He shall need no other power to subdue his enemies, other than the power and sharpness of his mighty word. With Christ's word, he did cast out devils, healed the sick and raised the dead. And this same word shall divide and judge the world that God has placed him over. By the word of God, the heavens and earth were made, and now so by the Son of God, and the word that proceedeth out of his mouth shall the earth be cleansed and restored. The star represents the angels of the churches, Revelation 120, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Verse 17 of Revelation chapter 1 now. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. 
I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Benson on this verse. And when I saw him in this awful, this glorious and resplendent form, I was perfectly overwhelmed with the majesty of his appearance, so that I fell at his feet as dead. Human nature not being able to sustain so glorious an appearance. Thus was he prepared, like Daniel of old, who he particularly resembles, for receiving so weighty a prophecy. A great sinking of nature usually precedes a large communication of heavenly things. End quote. One cannot come into contact with God's holy presence and not be taken back, so much so that even time seems to stand still. Revelations from God thus will always very greatly humble the heart so that we internally feel unworthy of being in the Lord's presence. Any true sight of the Son of God will therefore not puff a man up like just knowledge can, but will send him to his knees and to his face. God's glory having a great effect on the man's inward soul and even his physical body. The true glory of the Lord well beyond man's physical limitations to see him and to live. Hence, though this was a vision given to the Apostle John of Christ's glory, still he fell before the Lord as one dead. This shall also be the same result in us if we ever by God's grace are allowed to see the great glory, which is the Son of God's. Amen.